0: Hear the word of the Lord from John 13, one through 35. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour, his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, that you should also do that, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we've been going through a sermon series called Cruciform. We are um, going through scripture asking the question, what does it mean to truly be a disciple of Jesus? Um, And one of the things, uh, actually, over the last couple of weeks we've been exploring, first, that the gospel re-identifies us. The gospel gives us a completely new identity, just as we celebrated with Will this morning as we come to believe in Jesus, that he is the son of God who died to take away the sins of the world that we receive a new identity and, and we are now in Christ. The, re, the cross redefines who we are, but then it also reshapes our life. This new identity comes with a new trajectory. We, we are now informed, every aspect of our life, now informed um, by the cross of Christ. Last week, we, we, we unpacked the two sort of principle, the, the key markers of the life of a disciple, that of faith, uh, of believing Jesus is who he actually says he is, And the second part of obeying him as we ought to. And today we are going into um, the next phase of this series, a short series, and asking what kind of a community, what kind of a people does the cross create? And so um, that's where we're going this morning. I want to pray for us. Would you pray for me? I'll pray for you. And we'll dive into this text. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. You have given us um, a, the word, your word, to be uh, a light unto our feet. Help us to see by the word this morning um, that you would shine so brightly, the light of Christ would shine so brightly into our hearts that we would see you rightly, we would see ourselves rightly, that we would uh, long for the, the cross to, to, to work us over in all of the best ways. Uh, that Jesus would do a work in our hearts, that we would walk out of here uh, in a manner that, that's eager to glorify him, bring glory to him. We pray this morning that the word would not uh, return void, knowing that that is your promise. It doesn't. As the word goes out, it does its work. So, Lord, would you work this morning as I, as I preach, um, as I unpack your word, would you give me a mind to think clearly and, and words uh, to speak with precision? Would my heart be filled with affections for you and your people? Would you help us to see, to believe, and to hold fast to this word this morning as we desire to please you um, and and live our lives as a living sacrifice unto you, Lord. I want to pray against distractions. I want to pray against um, any any opportunity the enemy gives us a chance to step around, um, a sense of conviction. Lord, would your spirit lead us into conviction and through conviction and bring us to forgiveness, reconciliation, and hope. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Every once in a while, um, we're driving around town or just hanging out with my boys. I've, I've got, I've got four boys, eight, oh boy, shouldn't have started this because I'm going to mess up. Eight, five. Nope. eight five four one. I had to cheat. My wife's down there giving me hand signs. And to the older boys, as we we make our way around, um, one of the things that I'll ask them every once in a while is what do you want to be known for? When people talk about you, what are the things that you hope they're saying about you? Now, sometimes it's hilarious it's hilarious stuff. Zane uh, just turned four yesterday and he is uh, the the human equivalent of a toothpick, little fella. And and last time I asked him this, he said, I was like, what do you want to be known for? He's like, my muscles. (laughs) And other times it's, it's really endearing as a dad, stuff that I hope that, uh, that they say, here's what I want to be known for, that I hope to be known for um, myself. And, and as we have these conversations, there's this easy self-evaluation that I like to put right back. The second follow-up question is, are you giving people reasons to say those things about you truthfully? Are you, giving things, are you giving people the reasons to say those things that you hope that they're saying about you? In other words, I'm thinking about legacy because what you do today and what you repeat tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day will inevitably become your legacy. Today, we sit on a similar conversation. Actually, it's more of a masterclass with Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 13. Jesus says to them, what you are known for will indicate if you are truly my disciples. Because the thing is, you cannot just self-identify as a Christian. If, if you're filling out a survey um, and they ask what, what religion you are, it's, it's not as simple as just checking a box and saying, well, I'm a Christian. Jesus says there is an obvious mark. There are real evidences that will point to the reality if you are a true disciple or if you are not. Now, what is that evidence? I mean, he boils it down to one thing, really. What is that one thing? And in verse 34 of chapter 13, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus says the thing that will mark you as a true disciple of mine if, is if you love one another the way that I have loved you. Now, this shouldn't be surprising. In fact, uh, in, in Galatians, the apostle Paul lists off the fruit of the spirit, that, that what happens, that the, the fruit that's produced in the life of a disciple, the first thing that he says is love, that love is the marker of a true Christian. If you've been around church, For a while, or even just a minute, you've probably heard this before. It's a familiar concept. It's probably not all of that shocking that Jesus' disciples or Christians should be known for their love. Now, what's shocking, however, is the kind of love, the caliber of love that Jesus commands his disciples to live into, And what makes it even harder is realizing how difficult it is to love others the way Jesus commands us to love. Because this love, this love that Jesus lays out as an example for us, it doesn't come naturally. In fact, it runs contrary to our default M.O. Now, three things that I want to address this morning. As Jesus identifies the key marker of a disciple is that of his love. I want to ask three questions. First, what is this brand of love? What does this love look like? What what are the qualities? What are the characteristics of this kind of love? Number two, what does this love create? And number three, what enables this sort of love? And, and perhaps there's no better place to seek the answers to these questions than in John chapter 13. Now, as we open up to John chapter 13, what we typically do is go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the entire Bible. What we're doing is just dropping in for a moment in the middle of John's gospel. And, and there's been a lot of stuff that's happened up to this point, um, but right now where we're reading, where we begin re- reading in chapter 13, we are sitting right there, and Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday is um, right smack dab in the middle of Holy Week. It's when Jesus has come to Jerusalem. The week before that, Jesus rode in um, the triumphal entry on the back of a donkey. Um, his disciples are up in the upper room. that They're about to celebrate the Passover meal. And what Jesus actually does at that time is institute what we call the Lord's Supper, what we're going to participate in after the sermon. And as Jesus sits there, Right smack dab in the middle of Passion Week, Jesus is fully aware of this reality, that his hour had come. This is what it starts out with in in verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew that his death was imminent he, he knew the countdown had begun and he would only be on earth for a few more hours now if you ha- only have 24 hours to live if somebody told you yep um the cl- time expires for you in 24 hours how are you going to spend that time what are you going to do I-, I would imagine that most of us are going to surround ourselves with the people that we love and more than likely, we'll do something that's a little bit self-indulgent, right? We'll, we'll, we'll spring for that restaurant that we've always wanted to eat at, but the prices are always too high. We'll go skydiving. We'll do something fun that we've really looked forward to, right? We do something that's, that's a little bit self-serving, that has a little bit of, of an angle of self-interest involved. Now, Jesus takes us 24 hours, the last 24 hours, and Jesus is situated around the people that he loves. It tells us that in verse in verse one, that he's, he's with those who he loved to the end. But he did not do this self-indulgent thing that we would tend to do. He, he didn't put himself at the center and kind of funnel everything toward that. He did the exact opposite. And here's the picture. Here, here's the scene, how it unfolds here. Uh, you can look with me at verse four. Actually, verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper... He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, he tied it to his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus takes the last 24 hours, he's with his buddies, and Jesus gets down on his hands and knees and starts washing their feet. Now, that's not a practice that we're uh, very familiar with in this 21st century world that we occupy. And in the first century world, it's very common. In the first century world, there were, there were a couple of things that necessitated the need to wash people's feet. First of all, uh, people primarily wore sandals. They're, they're in, in the desert, M- Middle East, sort of thing. Um, and and they would walk around with, with sandals that would expose their feet. Um, in this time, there were no paved roads, there were no sidewalks, so they walk, You know, and, and they don't have cars, obviously, so they would walk from place to place, and as they would walk, their, their feet would get dirty from all the dirt, debris, the sand, whatever, you name it. Well, the other factor in this is that This was a shared road. Um, It wasn't just humans using this road, it was animals. And a lot of times, the the animals would leave behind evidences that they would be there. And before you know it, you stepped in something that you wish you hadn't. And so it was a common practice. It was was an act of courtesy for the host to offer. the guests who would come into their home to wash their feet. And actually a courtesy in the opposite way too, because you wouldn't want to, want to track in the dirt and the debris that you had and the smell um, that you picked up on the way to that person's house. Um, and so it was sort of a courtesy gesture to wash someone's feet. However, the person who would wash the feet was a role that was reserved for the lowliest of servants. Usually in a household, there was some sort of a hierarchy. Uh, um, you have the heads of the household, and it would sort of funnel down, and, and part of the household would be these servants, these people who were serving, and if they were not actual servants, it would be sort of the youngest, the lowliest of that family network. And these people would get down on their hands and knees and they would wash the dirt, wash the filth off of people's feet. And this, this act was very much a condescending act. It was, it was an act that made it very clear who was superior and who was inferior. Obviously the inferior one being the one washing the feet. And so for Jesus... Mind you, the Jesus who just uh, a few days before rode into Jerusalem and was hailed as the, the king of Israel, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, glory to God in the highest. They're, they're praising Jesus. They're, they're viewing Jesus as this coming king who's coming to take back God's kingdom. Now this future king of Israel is down on his hands and knees. This is preposterous. This, this blew the mind of the disciples. How could Jesus, the one who if, if is at the top of the hierarchy, if anybody's at the top of a hierarchy there, it's Jesus. If he can get down on the hands and knees and do that, what is going on? This world seems to be flipped upside down. And we know that they're dumbfounded because Jesus actually says, what, you, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And in fact, after he, he does this, um, he, he has to explain it later on here in, in verses six through eight. So th- this activity that Jesus is doing and getting down on his hands and his knees baffles them. It, it would be like uh, a president, a CEO of a company um, doing janitorial work, taking out the trash, scrubbing the toilets, that sort of thing. It just, it doesn't fit with our, our, our view of, of the hierarchy of how things ought to go. And this is so shocking that Peter, I mean, all the disciples are shocked, but Peter specifically is repulsed by this. He sees Jesus get down on his hands and knees and he actually refuses Jesus uh, the opportunity to serve him to, to wash his feet in this way. Look at this, at this in verse six. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but after you word, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. Now, we talked about this last week, but Peter had this version of Jesus in his mind. He had crafted his own personal, tailored sort of Jesus. And right now, in this moment, the real Jesus isn't fitting the mold. The real Jesus should be elevated. The real Jesus should be praised and lauded over, not be the one who takes the lowliest position in the room. So Peter looks at Jesus and says, this, this, this is too humiliating for you. This, this act of washing other people's feet is too far beneath you. I'm going to go ahead and need you to stop doing that. But this doesn't stop Jesus. Jesus understood his assignment Jesus continues down on his hands and knees with a water basin and a towel. He washes the disciples' feet, even Peter's. He finishes, and then he explains what's going on. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to his disciples, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord And you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus unpacks this whole thing. He's like, right now, you may not understand what's going on, but, but it's going to click for you here in a moment. But what Jesus was doing here as he got down before his disciples on his hands and knees, he was, he was being a trendsetter. He said to them, I am giving you an example of, to follow. This is the trajectory. If you are going to follow me, this is what it looks like. And he tells them, listen, a servant, a servant is not greater than his master. Now, if this is the case, if the master is the one who gets down and serves, how much more should it be for a servant to follow in his master's way? And he commissions his disciple, go and do likewise, as we'll see later on, right? This is how you'll be known by all people. You ought to wash one another's feet is what he tells them. Now, we know after the fact that that certainly the act of washing disciples' feet might be something that Jesus intended to carry on at the minimum, but it goes far beyond just the act of washing feet. Jesus has in mind here this, this big picture view that disciples of Jesus are meant to live a life of humility and service. This is why the Apostle Paul commands in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, that Christians ought to outdo one another in showing honor. It should be like this dance, like, like oh, you go, like, oh, you go for no, 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 I insist you go. This constant act of showing honor, of serving, which is motivated by humility. Now, this this is more than just a random act of kindness. And we know that because verses 1 and verses 35 are bookends to this narrative. We see in the middle, Jesus is serving his disciples. Jesus is doing a, a, practicable, a practical, a real tangible act of serving his disciples by getting down and washing his feet. But it's bookended by what the reality is, what the motivator is. It is love right? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And verse 35 goes on, verse 34, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. This whole thing, the bookends of this, the, the, the whole point is it's because I love you, I serve you. Therefore, it's not just a random act of kindness. It's an intentional thing where Jesus says, I am going to show you my love in the way that I serve you. This is the brand of Jesus' love. This is the kind of love. This is the caliber of love that Jesus has for his followers. And we have to realize that this goes far beyond being nice. I think Christians have this tendency... To, to lump in niceness as a certain sort of virtue of Christianity. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, kindness is definitely in there. There is a kindness to love. There's a niceness to love. But if you just stop at being nice, a lot of times that isn't real love. Just, just exchanging pleasantries doesn't require any kind of sacrifice. Hold, holding open a door requires so little of me that this doesn't even begin to express the kind of love that Christ has for his people. There, this goes way beyond being nice. Now, not, uh, love in, in the English language is sort of messy. It's a really weird word if you think about it because we can say on one hand, um, I, love, I love my mom. And then in the next sentence, I can say, I love hot dogs. I don't, but. <laughs> and, and if I say something, I like, I love pizza. Um, I can say those two statements and certainly I don't love my mom in the same way that I love pizza, right? And, and then you get some layers there. there there's romantic love, there, there's the feeling of affection. It's like it gets really, really fuzzy. But this word love, actually in the Greek, there's many different words for love in the Greek language. And each one of them expresses a different nuance, a different flavor of love. This love that Jesus expresses, the word that's used in this passage is agape. It's a love that, that is affectionate of someone that acts to bless them. So it's not just a feeling, it's not just this sense of, yeah, I like that person, but because I have this affection for you, I'm willing to put my money where my mouth, I'm willing to put my life where my mouth is. To, to have agape love, agape love, is to esteem someone so highly that you are willing to seek their welfare at the expense of your own. This love is self-giving. It's self-expending. See, when Jesus gets down on his hands and knees, he's saying, I'm willing to put my reputation on the line. I'm willing to be viewed as the lowliest to express to you how deeply I love for you. And there's no strings attached. In fact, one of the things that, that makes this obvious is who it is that Jesus is serving right there in the moment, who Jesus is breaking bread with, who Jesus gets down, because we're told all of the disciples are there. In fact, in this middle, the middle passage that, that, that we had read, verses 21 through like 30, 29, something like that, it makes us very aware of the fact that one of the people that are there getting their feet washed is Judas, the betrayer. Jesus is willing to give, to expend himself with no strings attached, no quid pro quo. There's no, there's no thought in his mind of, I'm going to do this so I get this back from you. It's not this bartering game. It's not this, there's, there's no economy of how I'm going to serve you so I then get served. Jesus just does it selflessly. Now this shows us the brand of love. Christian love is Selfless. Christian love is self-giving. Christian love is expressed by dying acts of service to benefit others. And all of this is predicated on humility. See, you cannot you cannot give this kind of love to somebody if you are looking to elevate yourself. If you're looking out for yourself, to love in this kind of way is going to be too humiliating, too too paradoxical, too too counterintuitive to what you're looking for. This kind of love is predicated on humility, the kind of humility that counts others as more significant than yourself, as Paul says in Philippians chapter two. See, instead of being self-indulgent in his last 24 hours, Jesus gets down on his hands and knees and he serves. All of the disciples, Judas included, and and honestly, the other disciples, within a matter of hours, are all gonna leave Jesus high and dry. Peter's gonna deny Jesus three times. The rest of the disciples are gonna run away, hide because they're afraid. Jesus still gets down He doesn't love in a calculated way. If if Jesus were to love in a calculated way, nobody would get it, but he loves. He, He sets his love, his agape on his disciples. Now this, this kind of love that is expressed is how God is glorified in the son of man. This is what verse 31 is pointing to when it says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. The fact that Jesus gets down and serves and loves his disciples is actually the way that Jesus glorifies his heavenly father. As the heavenly father pours his love out upon the son Jesus, now Jesus is pouring his love out upon his people. And when this love trickles down from the father to the son, to the people, This kind of love creates a certain kind of community. Christian love creates Christian community, a community that is defined by love. It creates an ecosystem of love. Now in this community, individuals expend themselves for the benefit of other people. It's by these dying acts of love, dying acts of love which are humble, servant-hearted, generous, that we see the kind of community Jesus intends to create. These are the kind of people who make meals for one another when someone's sick or when a baby has just entered into the world. This is the kind of community Love that leads to serving one another. If somebody has a broken car and I know how to fix it, I'm going to help you. I'm going to serve you in this capacity. Or or I might even use generosity to help fix it. This is the kind of of servant-hearted love which offers to watch kids in order to afford someone else a date night. (laughs) There we go. Somebody's into it. I like it. This is the kind of love. This is the kind of servant-hearted love that sticks around after missional community to help clean up, to help do the dishes. This is the kind of servant-hearted love that offers to dog sit or mow somebody's lawn when they're away on vacation. There's all kinds of things that this type of community does for one another as an expression of love that manifests itself in in terms of service. In fact, you've benefited from it already this morning. The the kind of love that wakes up early and comes to band practice to lead the church in worship. The kind of love that sacrifices a time up here to practice the liturgy and sing songs and sit under the preaching of the word to go downstairs and invest in our children. The kind of love that wakes up early to put coffee on and get donuts and make sure we're celebrating. This is the kind of love that the church, we see this in, in real tangible, practical practical evidences of love and service toward one another. See, people who have been loved, people who have received the kind of service that Jesus serves us with, are the kind of people who have their eyes open to see the needs of other people and then rush to meet them. Not, not standing back and saying, well, somebody will take care of it. Somebody else will step up. It's a sort of eager servant hardness. Jesus didn't sit back waiting for one of his... He didn't wait for Judas to step up and wash his disciples' feet. Jesus took it upon himself. Now, part of this, I, I spoke to some real practical ways that we can serve and bless. And, and, and I mean, like, lit, you can sit down with your missional community and find ways to serve one another that, that are really meaningful. Those are just a couple of ideas. But one of the ways that the church needs to and must and is commanded to serve one another is by speaking words of service because this is something that that we don't really get in the world anymore people don't tell the truth you want to know why because telling the truth is hard Now, it might be counterintuitive to think that to speak the truth to somebody, which which might seem a lot like stepping on their toes, it might feel really uncomfortable. It may not seem like you're serving someone, but if you do it with grace and with truth, it is amongst the most loving things that you can do. Speaking words of service, speaking the truth, is uncomfortable speaking the truth puts us outside of our comfort zone that's why in missional community a lot of times things will start to get uncomfortable S- somebody starts pressing in and, and identifying maybe there's some idolatry. there's a hard issue going on here and we want to bring the, the good news of the gospel to bear but but to get to that good news you have to wade through a lot of tricky conversation and it can feel uncomfortable And when you start to feel that uncomfortability, a lot of times people will try to short circuit real love to speak the truth with grace and sort of skip to the good stuff and sort of sugarcoat things. Now, one of the things that's going to set the church apart from the rest of the culture is how well we can speak, how well we can bless one another, how well we can serve one another by speaking the truth in love because there may not be anything harder. It's easy to mow somebody's grass, right? But to actually speak the truth to somebody, ooh, that's, that's real service. Now, one of the things that happens as, as the church lives into this thing, this sort of ecosystem of love and service, is it doesn't just say isolated to, to the people that we like in the church. It starts to creep outside of the walls. It goes beyond, and that's one of the reasons why all of our missional communities have a, have a people and a place that we're on mission to. Somebody that we've, we've sort of circled and say, here's where we're going to bless and to serve. Here's where we're going to take a place of humility and find a way to meet their needs instead of serving our own agenda. And so we see this servant-heartedness ooze out beyond the church into the community as we work to renew the city, now, this might look like picking up trash, going with a garbage bag through your neighborhood, picking up trash, because who wants to do that? Who, who wants to pick up trash? Well, I think a servant of Jesus would as you make your way through the neighborhood. Who, who wants to cut out a morning, a Saturday morning, to go down to a food pantry or serve at World Relief or, or do whatever your mission is with your mission? Who wants to do that? Well, a Christian ought to want to do that. Christian love creates this ecosystem of self-giving. I'm willing to give myself in order to benefit other people, where even the least of these are served and elevated. Now, the thing about this is everyone wants to receive this kind of love, right? Man, it'd be nice to be loved this way. It would be nice for somebody to come offer to mow my lawn. It'd be great for somebody to watch my kids. We all want to be served in this way. We like that idea. Even, even the vision of an ecosystem where everybody's pouring themselves out to one another. But the problem is you. The problem's me. The problem's us. The, the reason why we can't do it, the reason why it's so hard to have a community like that is because. It's not our default mode. We're not naturally motivated for acts of service. And the reason for that is because we have what St. Augustine calls incurvatus insae. Yeah. Right? We, we confessed it this morning, except for we didn't do it in Latin. Um, we all have this inward bent. Sin has warped us, so all I can do, instead of God designing us to be outward facing, to see, like for Adam and Eve, to tend the garden, to see to its fruitfulness, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to kind of pour yourself out, that, that requires labor, that requires activity, that requires service. But instead what happens when sin comes in the world by Genesis chapter three, there's this great warping where instead of being outward facing, I suddenly focus in on myself. I suddenly become more preoccupied with my own wants, with my own desires, instead of what God has laid out for me to do. And so now my energy, now my effort, now my thoughts are poured into fulfilling myself, to serving my needs, my desires, my agenda. Now, when you operate out of this, when you have this incurvitous in this self-love will always override your desires to love and to serve other people. Even even if, in theory, you want to serve other people, even your service will be motivated by a self-driven agenda. Now, I think there are two responses when it comes to the call that we have from Jesus to love one another as he has loved us, to serve one another as he has served us, there are many excuses, many underlying motivators why we find it so difficult. There, there are many reasons why we don't have the eyes to see the needs that are around us and rush to fulfill them. That incurvatus in in-say manifests in a couple ways. We become... Sp- sp- self-preoccupied in a variety of ways. One is that of entitlement. We think to ourselves, well, if anybody, if anybody works hard and des- deserves to be served, it's me, right? I, I've earned the service of somebody else. Or, or we say, well, you know what? I, I would do that, but I'm just, I'm just exhausted. I don't have anything left in my tank. Or, or maybe you, you think, I don't even know where to begin. If I'm gonna serve, I don't, I don't know what I have to offer. I've got nothing. We sort of downplay what the Lord has given us as gifts and how we ought to deploy them for the benefit of other people. Another way that we sidestep this is by simply saying, you know what, um, that's just too inconvenient. That's too costly. It takes too much of my time, too much intentionality, too much of my resources to go out of my way and to intentionally bless somebody else. It's just too, too cost. Or, or this, it's just uncomfortable. Like Jesus is literally down on his hands and knees, washing off filth from stinky feet. And we say, you know what? It just makes me feel too uncomfortable to do that. There are lots of reasons why we don't love in this way. But to love the way that Jesus calls us to love, when he says, to love one another as I've, I've loved you, it means that I must love other people more than I love myself at times. This is what Jesus does. In that moment, washing his disciples' feet, he loves his disciples more than he loves himself. And to echo Jesus' love towards one another, it's difficult, it's near impossible. And so we tend to approach it one of two ways. One, we don't do it. It's so hard, it's too difficult, it's too uncomfortable. I'm just not gonna do it. And the other way that we approach this is we do the acts of service, but it's self-motivated. So this looks like, well, yeah, I'm going to show up and and help you out around the house, but it's not actually for me to, to bless you in and of itself. It's actually for me to look good. It's actually for me to to hear from you how helpful that I am to you. How much you appreciate, it's some sort of validation of, I'm gonna do this so I get this back from you. Some sort of praise, some sort of acclamation, some sort of something. No, maybe we're not trying to get it from other people. I think a lot of times that that validation really helps. It, It motivates us to want to serve people. You get a t-shirt that says volunteer on the back or something. It's like, oh yeah, you do that. I think another thing that that motivates us is is that we are trying to earn our way in with God. We're trying to earn some kind of favor with God and say, look, God, look what I've done. Look at my resume. I've, I've done all of these kind acts of service. And the reason you're doing them is so that you can go before God and boast in yourself. It's not about actually serving, it's become about you. And so it's in this that our service, though it is good acts, right? We're doing good things. We're not doing them for the right reason. It's self-motivated. It's not others-oriented. It's, it's self-infatuated. Now, the only way that we're enabled to serve like Jesus The only way that we're able to serve in the way that Jesus serves his disciples is to see that Jesus has served you in the most necessary and generous of ways. Like Peter, you must also be washed. Now, what, like, what do you mean? Like Jesus has to wash my feet? Well, no, not, not your feet, not literally. It's something dirtier. It's your soul, it's your heart. Jesus has to wash away your sin so that you would be able to take part with him, to have a share with him. He's gotta cleanse you of your self-centeredness, your pride that stands in the way of taking the lowly position, your complacency for not getting out of your comfort zone, you're wavering, love, lack of love for one another. See, Jesus has to wash you of everything that stands in the way of creating the kind of community that you want to be part of. G.K. Chesterton was once there was a... a um, an op-ed in the newspaper. And and these writers, these thought leaders were supposed to send in, um, there was one question they were supposed to all respond to in a a short summary. And it said, what is the problem with this world? And you wanna know what G.K. Chesterton wrote? I am. I'm the problem. I'm the problem with why my community doesn't function the way that I want it to that it's not the ecosystem of service and love that I just long to be part of. I am the problem. And as soon as we all start taking responsibility in that, and saying like, I can say that and you can say that and we can all say that, that I am getting in the way, Jesus frees us from that which binds us to self-obsession. And he does that by showing us what real dying love looks like. He frees us from the bondage of self-concern, of self-obsession. Now, how does he do this? Well, it's not foot washing. That's not the end all be all here. That's not Jesus's mission strategy for uh, the church and to, to the millennia here. The foot washing was a foreshadowing of the real act of service that would come hours later. This is why Jesus said, hey, what I'm doing right now, you won't understand, but one day it will. It will soon, you will soon understand. And the thing that will make sense of this is this, the cross of Christ. See, that's what, that's what Jesus is getting at with verse seven. When he says, uh, you, you don't understand right now, you, you, but you will, afterward. When he says afterward, well, after what? After the cross once you've seen the cross, once you understand what I've done for you on the cross, then everything else will make sense. This is precisely what Jesus came to do. In Matthew 20, Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, the way that I'm going to serve you is not just by washing your feet. It's not just by getting down on my hands and knees and washing off a little dirt. Jesus says, the way that I'm going to serve you is by getting up on the cross and all of your filth, all of your dirtiness, all of the sin that you've included in your life, both past, present and future will be laid upon him and he will serve you ultimately by taking upon himself those things. And by his blood, you will be cleansed. By his blood, you will get a new identity. By his blood, you will know just how deep the Father's love is for you. In John 15, just a couple chapters beyond where we're situated today, Jesus says this, no greater love is there than this, than a man who laid down his life for his friends. Now that's true. No, no greater love is there than this. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples who are his friends, but, but there's also this layer that we need to understand that Jesus is the one who dies for his enemies too. It is while we are hostile in mind, while we were alienated from God, while we are apart from Christ, he died for us to bring us in. See, he, he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He brings us close to God by the blood. By his blood, we are cleansed. And in this, we see the ultimate act of dying love. See, that's what real love is. Real love are acts of dying love. I'm going to lay my, I'm going to pour myself out. I'm going to lay myself down. I'm going to die to myself so that you can live. I'm going to die to my reputation. I'm going to die to my pride. I'm going to die to my ego. I'm going to die to my self obsession so that you can benefit from this. See, the love of Jesus is cruciform. The love of Jesus isn't this like text emoji, like this cool heart with like the beat things, you know? The love of Jesus is cruciform. The symbol of God's love is the cross. Now, this is where two realities meet. First of all, you think, well, I'm not that selfish. I, I, you know, I really do a pretty good job of thinking about other people, and I hold doors open, and, you know, I, I say nice things. No, 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 the cross tells you you don't understand how sinful you are. You, you don't understand how deep the cancer, how, how warped in on yourself you are, how self-infatuated you are. It's so bad, the only way to straighten you out, the only way to get your eyes up off of yourself is for Jesus to go to the cross to pay for that sin. That's the first thing it communicates. And the second thing it communicates is how deeply God loves you. He's willing to put it all on the line, to lay it all down for you so that you could be washed thoroughly from the, as far as the east is to the west. Our sin is taken away from us. And in this, our hearts are straightened out. We are unwarped. The gospel unwarps us. Seeing what Jesus has done, how Jesus has served us, how Jesus has loved us, makes us live in response to that thing where we would lay our lives down for others. This is why Jesus says to his disciples, all people will know you as my disciples if you love one another. Now here's the the crazy thing is, Um, Christians, we don't just repent. Repentance is a turning away from one thing to turn to God, right? Turning away from sin to move toward God. We don't just repent of our selfish things, like the things that we do poorly, the bad things that we do. Christians also repent of the good things that we do with bad motives, Because we realize in the gospel that I can't prove myself to God. I can't earn favor with God by doing good things so I can repent from those things and receive the grace and love from Jesus that makes me whole, that brings me in. So I hear the Father say over me, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because there's no way you can add to what Jesus has given us. The kind of love that glorifies God is cruciform. (laughs) The kind of love that that glorifies God is cruciform love, self-giving, self-dying love. This is what it looks like for us to honor and to love God that we truly love other people. When, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus marries these two things together and says the way that you honor God, the way that you love God, the way you serve God is by loving and serving your neighbor. Now this radical cruciform love is what evidences that we are disciples of Jesus. It's as we are filled up with this love that it pours out of our life onto the life of others. And so Christian love says this, Christian love looks at my, my brother, looks at my sister and says, I'm willing to give my life for yours. I'm willing to lay down my preference for yours. I'm, I'm willing to lay down my pride to serve you. Or in other words, I'm willing to give my good up for your glory. I'm willing to serve you in a way that will make you a glorious creature. See, this is exactly what Jesus does because when he dies for us, he doesn't just forgive us, but he brings us into glory. He doesn't just die to forgive sin. He he dies to make us a glorious creature. Hebrews 2.10 speaks of this, that he's the one who brings many sons to glory. This is, what, this is the potency. This is the power of acts of dying love. And those who serve and love selflessly bring glory to God, but will also be glorified by the heavenly father just as Jesus is glorified. You see, the whole thing of this, when, when Jesus starts talking here at the end in verse 31, he says, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. He's speaking of the fact that God is glorified in Jesus' ultimate act of sacrifice, His ultimate act of service. And when we see what Jesus has done for us, how he has served us, we give ourselves to that kind, that caliber, that brand of love toward one another. And it's not us who does this. It's the power of the spirit at work in us. It is the fruit of the spirit that drives us to love in this way. This is different, this is different than the mentality of I am serving in order to earn something. It's different than that sort of bargaining, that eco, or the, the economy of service and love and reward. See, what, what drove Jesus isn't, I'm gonna do this so that I get this. Jesus went to the cross because he had already received all things in the Father. This is noted right at the beginning here, uh, verse, uh, verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end, oops, it's, it's verse three, sorry. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was, had come from God and was going back to God, is the fact that Jesus had all things already, he was willing to give them up. At the cross, we have been served and loved like never before. No one can match the act of love and kindness and service that Jesus pours out at the cross.